Okay, good evening, and thank you for joining us for this evening's event. My name is Gus Hossein. I'm in the Information Systems and Innovation Group within the Department of Management, and I'll be chairing this uh, very special session with some very special speakers. Um, I will introduce them shortly, but I just wanted to give you some background as to why we're having this type of meeting with this type of format. In, in our group, uh, we like to think that we are positioned in the middle of these very complicated uh, issues and events that are going on in our, in our lives uh, around us, whether it's information security, glo um, globalization, global sourcing, um, ICTs in the public sphere, ICT and globalization, all, this, all these uh, issues coming together in, under the rubric of the social study of information and communication technologies and innovation. And so when we were approached to uh, consider running an event like this, we thought, okay, how do we actually have the most interesting debate about what's going on nowadays, some of the, the currents uh, that are in current affairs, let's say. So I thought, uh, well, why don't I reach out to some of my friends and colleagues in industry and see what kind of uh, interesting discussions we could get, to see what they think about some of these issues. And as you can imagine, in the past week, it's almost like uh, uh, global events are working in our favor and making this an even more interesting issue, particularly with the, uh, the situation with Google and China. So let me first introduce the, uh, the panelists for this fireside chat. I tried to get permission to have a fire in this room, but as you can imagine, health and safety got in the way. Um, they, uh, we're for very fortunate to have Richard Allen, the last person to have arrived for our event today. Uh, Richard's a very dear and old colleague of ours who uh, used to be a member of Parliament. In fact, I think he was the only MP who understood technology. Unfortunately, he wasn't with the government, so that re have resulted in many policies that don't understand technology. He's now um, the European Public Policy Director for Facebook, and previously he was at Cisco. We also now also have Casey Chappelle. Uh, Casey recently joined us from the United States, and we're very happy to have her in the United Kingdom. She's the Global Privacy Council for Vodafone Group Services. Uh, she previously worked at eBay. We, we had worked together for at least two or three years and has held other uh, positions dealing with global regulation and telecom regulation. Earlier today, some of the students uh, were able to benefit from the, uh, the expertise of Usama Fayyad, who uh, used to be the uh, chief data officer and executive vice president at Yahoo, uh, and previously co-founded the very, very important company called Revenue Science. If you know anything about internet advertising and analytics, you'll know that this is one of the most influential uh, in and innovative companies back in its day. And he's now the CEO of Open Insights, uh, which he can introduce a little bit more later, perhaps. And finally, uh, we have Alma Witten. Uh, we're very pleased to have Alma here. She's also re recently joined us from the United States. Uh, Alma is the privacy engineering lead at Google. It's important to understand that Alma was one of the first uh, security engineers to join Google back in 03, right? Back in 2003. And prior to that, she was uh, a very well-known, well-respected, and she's still well-respected, of course, uh, expert on the usability of security systems, which is an area that too few are actually doing work on. So we're very fortunate to have Alma with us. So there won't be presentations. That's the longest presentation of the entire session. I wanted more of a dynamic conversation uh, with people. And so what better way to start a dynamic conversation than to have very, very boring slides uh, with questions on them. But hopefully uh, we'll have a little bit more um, excitement emerging from them. And so I figured I'd start with a very, uh, well, timely one. 
That is the Google China story. And uh, recently, one of the uh, one of the world's uh, senior technology security experts, Bruce Schneier, wrote an article on CNN.com over the weekend, actually, uh, where he commented on what had happened between Google and China. He is saying he concluded that it's bad civic hygiene to build technologies that could someday be used to facilitate a police state. It's very strong rhetoric, um, and it's been a lot of rhetoric and excitement around this story. But we can't forget that the Google China story. Uh, has happened before, and it's not just with Google and not just with China. We remember uh, back after the Iran elections, there was a lot of excitement on the Internet about what could be done in order to, uh, to help the opposition party in Iran, and there's a lot of talk about how Facebook and Twitter were used during the campaigns and, and the subsequent protests. And most recently, um, actually in uh, early January, the head of the police in uh, Iran noted, as he was um, informing the public to stop using uh, technologies such as text messaging uh, to organize protests because they were monitoring all the text messages, he noted that attending illegal, illegal gatherings, rioting, and insulting the sacred are reason for police reaction. Those who organize the gathering commit a bigger crime. So using Facebook and using other modern resources that are available to people uh, people are able to organize, yes, but they're also placed under surveillance, as we saw, again, most recently with, uh, with Google in China, where the Chinese government was hacking into the email accounts of human rights advocates in China and around the world. So my first set of questions to the panelists are, what is the relationship between your companies and law enforcement and, and the policy-making apparatus when it comes to government access to information? How do you respond to governments who are asking uh, for access to information, whether it is the U.S. government um, or state governments in the U.S. asking for access to uh, emails and traffic data, or requests from, say, Saudi Arabia, or requests from other governments around the world? And then there's the question of general involvement in the policymaking process. We often see companies as the victims of of bad policy making in, in all these countries. But the reality is that companies play a strong role in informing public policy and policy deliberation. So how do you how do you deal with that dynamic of being involved in the policy making process but also being subject to them? Anybody want to start? How do we have Alma start? Because after all okay. it is the Google story. Let me start with a giant disclaimer then, which is that please, please the mic. Sorry. Um, let me start with a giant disclaimer that then, which is that some portions of your very excellent questions are much better addressed by um, a company's general counsel when we're looking at questions of what the company's perspective is on compliance with governments and with law enforcement. So that's more a question for a lawyer, and I'm here as an engineer. Um, so what I will focus on then instead, I think most usefully, is the question of what how did you phrase it again? What, what is um, the company's responsibility to engage in the public debate and to try to inform good policy? And I think that for me and for Google, what we have, have really been grappling with as a responsibility in at least the past year or two is the understanding that much of the way search engines work in our use of data is very sort of under the hood rocket science mysterious to people. And that if we're going to have an informed public debate about what that data is, what it's useful for, what it's not useful for, what the risks and the benefits are of that data and how that all works, we're gonna need to rise to this challenge of explaining, explaining that rocket science 
in terms that make sense to everyone, to policymakers, to the individuals whose data it is, to the media, to all of the people involved in this public debate. And so I think that our immediate responsibility is to do this kind of, the kind of explanation that I might be doing here tonight, but also wherever possible building that kind of explanation and transparency directly into our products so that people's experience of using Google is one that in itself informs them about what the data is and what the data is for and how everyone's data feeds back into making the search engine good for everyone. Richard, do you have any experiences from, say, last summer with the Iran story? I mean, aside from Iran, which I think is an, uh, an acceptable case, I'll come back to that in a second. I think just talking about the, the general um, position, and, and this is, Facebook is part of this, but I think this is bigger than Facebook. Um, there's quite a lot of debate at the moment about whether the Internet is truly global or whether it's national. And this is one area where it's distinctly national. So, so what really matters is where the data is, and the home jurisdiction for the data is the number one factor. So, so take a company like Facebook and similar to a lot of other companies, the data is held in the US, therefore US law prevails. And US law prevails in a number of different ways. It does create certain responsibilities on you to offer up that data if asked with lawful authority. It also creates certain protections. So for example, under Patriot Act provisions, if you're a company that holds data in the US, if you were to give it to people like the Iranians, then you would have all kinds of legal problems in your home jurisdiction. So I think that's the first thing is, is I mean, this is the way to unpick it is look where the home jurisdiction is. So you've got big law uh, issues there. Then you'll also typically have a layer of terms of service and privacy policy on top. And again, Facebook does this, but so do many other companies. And that will say things like, you must not use our service for illegal purposes. Um, but to be honest, what most internet companies mean is you mustn't use our service for purposes which are deemed to be illegal in countries where we respect the law. Um, but if you use it for illegal purposes in a country like Iran, we're not going to stop you. So there is a kind of, immediately the company has a blanket policy, but the policy is being differentially uh, enforced. And then there's probably another layer, which is particularly relevant when it comes to law enforcement requests, which is, do you have bodies on the ground in that country that people can get to? as well as the data. And again, that's another factor which we're all factoring in. And again, it can work different ways. To give you an example of the United Kingdom. If the United Kingdom uh, authorities wanted to get data from a company that holds the data in the United Kingdom, it could use a standard legal procedure under something called the Police and Criminal Evidence Act for data at rest and say, I want that data from your server. Judges in the United Kingdom will not serve such an order where it can't be enforced because the data is outside the United Kingdom. So you can't serve a PACE order on a company that's keeping all its data at, outside the United Kingdom. So there you have to have a discussion and work out what it's reasonable for them to request and what it's reasonable for you to give under the terms of things like your privacy policy. And it is very much a matter of negotiation. They've got some leverage because you've got bodies on the ground and an office and computers they could take away if if they were so minded, you've got quite a lot of leverage because their legal powers are relatively weak. Uh, and that sort of discussion, I think, is taking place between all the internet companies and the authorities in each individual jurisdiction. And typically where it's some, somewhere like Western Europe, you come to an agreement. And typically where it's somewhere like Iran, you don't. Um, and that's probably, I hope, as descriptive as I can get at this stage. Yes, so, um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll follow up on what Richard said. Uh, with some agreements, and then I'll add to it. 
Uh, well, first of all, I, I, just to make it clear, I, I'm no longer with Yahoo, so I'm not a Yahoo uh, officer. I can't, therefore, I can't speak for the company, so I'm not here representing Yahoo. But at the same time, it's a good thing because now I can say my opinions <laughs> freely without without necessarily divulging any any of the Yahoo proprietary information. So here's what I'll here's my impression. It's it's a real mess out there when it comes to the laws and, and the jurisdictions and, and where the data lives versus not. And I'll use a real example from, from my days at Yahoo. Uh, this is an example where I sort of lived it when, when Yahoo was required uh, by the Chinese government to surrender information pertaining to the use of email. At the time, we actually didn't know what the heck they wanted. Uh, we provided it in terms of a, a routine uh, uh, provisioning of, of that data upon a legal request. Uh, the reason we had to obey the, the, the law in that case was that China basically says either you operate with these rules or you can't have a presence in my country. You can't you know, have a bank account, you can't charge, you can't do business. Uh, and Yahoo wanted to do business, much like Microsoft and Google and, and, and other companies uh, wanted to. Uh, what's really amazing to me is that <coughs> People didn't pay much attention to, for example, the fact that in almost every other country, probably with the exception of a few Western European countries, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not thoroughly familiar with the law there. You know, my colleagues here know much better. In almost every other country, including the United States, the conditions uh, that the governments impose and the restrictions and the demands that they impose on operators of big uh, systems, whether they are uh, ISPs or providers of email or you know all of these public uh, information providers on the internet, they are pretty draconian, right? Uh, you know the United States requirements, especially post September 11, are scary. Uh, so number one is is that that mess. Now wh why does that mess exist? Why does every country say, in my opinion, why does every government say I have rights? to sort of see what somebody is doing in email, see what somebody is doing in search, see what... The reason for that actually comes from the, the deeper uh, source of the problem. I don't know if it's a, if it's a, if it's a source, but it's the deeper reason. Uh, that this whole free infrastructure business, right? Because the connectivity is essentially free, quote unquote, because a lot of the services are gotten by consumers for free, uh, it sort of leaves it as, a, as an open, you know, new frontier where anything goes. It's really, you know, sort of cowboy territory. Uh, and it's a very different situation when you move to a, you know, paid service, very well understood conditions, relationships with adults who can sign and, and agree to contracts and all of that. And, and that's, a, that's a land where you can provide a lot more protection and so forth. Now, part, part of the, and, and I agree here with, with Alma, part of the obligation is to have these kinds of debates in order to educate the public to take us finally to some stage where people agree on, on some form of, uh, of restrictions that, that make sense, of regulation that is rational, right? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll hand, that, that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing is I wanted to comment very quickly about that uh, first quote you put up, Gus, on uh, technology that enables a police state. Uh, it's un unhygienic, I think, that the yes. thing said to develop such technologies. 
I'd like to remind everybody that the Internet evolved out of Department of Defense work in the United States for the longest time, right? ARPANET and so forth. Uh, and almost all technologies we use today had either, you know, some huge military component that drove them or some, you know, state-funded, you know, other purpose. So to me, I think anybody who attacks technology is attacking the wrong thing, right? It's really policy, and in this case, I think it's truly lack of policy uh, and lack of clarity on policy that's the problem. It's, it's, it's not the technology, right? We all believe, actually most of us here believe that in the Internet is, is more liberating than enslaving, right? It's a mechanism for educating uh, the public, for reaching out to information, for making it available to everybody. It's a democratizing force. Uh, so that, that's the one uh, warning I'll give. If I could um, just ask Casey, because Vodafone works in more companies than other uh, more countries than all these other companies do combined. I imagine it's very difficult for uh, Vodafone to talk with these governments in order to enhance policy making. So what can companies do to protect themselves but also get the best possible policy? Well, so we're in a very different position from most of the people on this panel, I think, when you've got people on the ground in these countries, you've got networks that are regulated by these countries, and, and you've got assets that, that can be you know, very easily garnished. It's, it's very hard to conduct a campaign of civil disobedience in the country. Um, what we've done is, because we do have these networks that are licensed in, in countries around the world, some of them with, frankly, more restrictive regimes than others, um, is we make sure that we, from a, from a group level, from the headquarters level, provide uh, advice and guidance to our local operating companies to make sure that they understand when a policy must be complied with and when we have some room to to push back to challenge requests for information, for example. And we do that on occasion. We, we will, within the scope of the law that, that applies in that country, push back on occasion to requests. Um, you know, I, I would say that even if you, you attempted to withdraw from a country, especially in a position like ours, there's always a local competitor that can fill that vacuum, and that local competitor may be a company that doesn't have the same kind of motivation that a global company like Vodafone has to establish more protective uh, consumer rights and norms. That's a very good point. That, that goes back to what Google said um, last week when, well, the, the Google situation generally, because if they were to pull out of China, the company left behind with the majority uh, consumer use has worse controls than uh, Google does when it comes to censoring uh, content. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, by staying there, you're, you're helping matters, particularly now that the boundaries are gone. We can come back to this issue uh, in, when we have the questions from the floor, but I thought we'd move on uh, so we don't focus the entire night on law enforcement. And first, uh, congratulate everybody on the stage for, for doing very well on a bad economy. <laughs> Google sees a bounce in profits. Uh, Vodafone is celebrated for the fact that it's going up while everybody else is going down. Even Yahoo did particularly well in the past quarter. So it's, uh, it's very promising out there. And so innovation continues because these companies have a lot of money, um, not just to hire students, hopefully, to do other things. Um, and uh, so, yeah, innovation is taking place. This is an interesting table posted in the New York Times uh, a couple of days ago comparing Google, Microsoft, Apple, and Yahoo, comparing all the services they offer. Usually when you ask people, what does Google do? They do search. 
you don't realize there are all these other applications out there. Same with Apple. Okay, um, Apple might do the iPhone and a few computers, but in reality, there's a many, many more uh, types of services that all these companies provide, and it's growing. Uh, one of the fastest areas of growth is actually um, this idea of an app store. This is what uh, the what iTunes did. Apple, I'm sorry, Apple did particularly well with the iTunes App Store with the iPhone. You can buy applications to put them on your on your phone. Well, all these other companies are dying to innovate in the same way because it actually creates greater interest for your devices or your services. Other people are developing for you, and you can make money off it. And I think um, at least three of the companies at this table are in this space of uh, of applications and innovation. Yet. There's also the challenge of privacy law. That is, uh, often it is said that privacy laws, particularly European privacy laws, inhibit this innovation, inhibit things like uh, cloud computing and advertising and all these other forms of, uh, all these other business models out there. And unfortunately, there's only one company that actually operates under the jurisdiction of European privacy law, technically, and that is actually Vodafone. So Vodafone's in a situation where it's launching its 360 phone, where it's going to have an, uh, an app store, and it has to follow rules that Facebook doesn't have to follow when it comes to its own apps, or Google doesn't have to follow because of its, of its apps. So I'd like to hear uh, the, the panel's ideas on whether the law actually inhibits or does it create a safe space for consumers and for innovation to take place? Well, so if I can jump into that you mentioned our app store. Um, I, I, I want to remind everybody of maybe of what the state of communications and internet technology was in 1995. I'm picking that date in particular because that was the, the year that the data protection directive, the, the pivotal EU privacy law was, was enacted. Um, I, I'm dating myself a little bit here when I say that in 1995 I had my first laptop. It was six pounds and it had a two gig hard drive. Right? My, my university roommate had a car phone that she kept uh, plugged into the, the lighter in her car at all times, mm -hmm. but she was absolutely forbidden to use it except in emergencies, because I think it was like eight bucks a minute to make a call. You know, and, and then think about the processing power, the size of the, of the hard drives that we have in our, in our handheld mobile devices now, and what we can access with that. You know, I, in 1995, I was dialing up to CompuServe. I was so excited that my job finally got an internet connection. I had to listen to that ear screen screech before we could connect and of course went to the Yahoo portal because that was the, uh, the exciting destination. Um, how much that's changed since the data protection directive was enacted. I, it's easy to see that laws that we create, created in 1995 might not necessarily continue to be applied in the same way in 2010. And so what we're seeing is we now have this environment where You've got an app store that runs on a mobile device. You know, the app store is run by one company. The mobile device was built by another company. The network is operated by a third, and all of those applications come from everywhere, right? You've got application developers that are that could be, you know, somebody in their garage just coding something, or you've got you've got amateur coders putting things out there. Who in that situation is, to borrow the terms of the data protection directive, who's the data controller? Who's the data subject? Who makes the decisions about how this information is used, how it's shared, and what privacy protections I as an end user have. And so I, I, I would say that that's been the biggest change, is how do we continue to manage the rights that the data protection directive and other frameworks give to the end user in this kind of an environment? I might jump in and uh, say even some more, because I thought what Casey 
said at the end there about you know the person writing this application could be just someone in their garage is very critical for us i mean google has really strong ties to the open source community and a lot of our engineers have come out of the open source community and so we're often developing as engineers for a model in which anyone might be writing some code anyone might be you know creating their own version of how something should work or adding some functionality and then possibly either just using it themselves or sharing it with some of their friends or putting it up there on the internet so that a wide variety of people can use it and then in our model you know perhaps if it's really successful showing a few little ads on it and making a little money to encourage them to continue to develop this new functionality that other people will use and for us it's it's often very hard i think to identify the clear dividing line between sort of the amateur and the professional the personal tweak and you know the the um the actual really you know financial business model and so i think when we're looking at the kinds of questions that gus is raising so as engineers, we're often sort of taking that and going, well, how do we fit that onto, you know, what we're actually seeing day to day and what we're building for? If I could just adopt the question slightly for Richard, because Richard, uh, what I'm saying about the types of developers there are for these apps is particularly the case for, say, Facebook. But there's been a lot of story, not a lot, but there's been many stories in the media about concerns about what these apps actually do. And if, are, if, if we don't even know who's developing them, and how they're using this information. What about consumer protection? But just at the purely kind of technical level, the basic answer is that um, apps also have their own jurisdiction. So it's perfectly possible. I mean, if an app is, if, if we get together and develop an app here and we form a company that's in the United Kingdom, there's no question about the law that applies to that app. It's the United Kingdom law. So we should, we should just be clear that apps... Uh, although you see a big catalogue, each one of those has a home jurisdiction. That's, I think, an important point to bear in mind. <laughs> in terms of the kind of bigger question, I think, uh, going back to Casey's point about the, the Act, I think there is a, a fundamental question that we need to address, which is that the law was designed, the Dave Collection Law was designed, imagining a world in which you had big organisations and small citizens, uh, big data controllers and tiny data subjects, and the data subjects were having transactions one-on-one -on -one with a particular big organization data controller in a particular jurisdiction. And then they came up with you know, some bits to work around to say, well, if the data controller was in the US, then there's a safe harbor scheme for them and so on. But the model essentially was these one-to-one -one relationships. What we've actually ended up with, and the apps world kind of typifies this, though, is many players in multiple jurisdictions. And increasingly, the data controller may be the data subject as well. So if we take a typical example, uh, say on an iPhone, you might have a photographic geo-tagging kind of service that involves Flickr, i.e. Yahoo, Google Maps, some advertising from a third party, the Safari browser, the Apple platform. All of those kind of mixed up in, in a particular app, and that may all be controlled by a particular user, and it may post a photograph that somebody doesn't like on Facebook using that app. And trying to kind of unpick that with the existing law just, just kind of doesn't work. Um, and I think as well, I mean, the other kind of trend as well is sort of big versus small and multiple versus single trend. The other one is increasingly, I think, privacy rights, and this is the innovation point, are butting up against freedom of expression rights. So the classic one is if, if there is a photo published in that way that you don't like, do you go to Facebook or Picasso 
or Yahoo, Flick, or wherever it is that the photo is published, and ask them, the big organisation, the data controller, to remove it? Or do you go back to the person who took the photo, who actually really is the data controller, and say to them, deal with it at source? Because it's no good knocking it down on one site, it's going to pop up on, on, on all the others. And, and those kind of things, you know, the right of the photographer versus the rights of the photographed, I think are increasingly going to be some of the issues that we need to deal with as data controllers are also data subjects and as they deal with multiple organizations. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, <coughs> I'll, I'll add a couple of comments here. Um, one is, I, mean, I agree with Casey that the, uh, the, the laws are old and by no means have kept up with the technology. And, and usually when the technology is moving faster than the governments or the legislature, then the best thing to do is, is not to interfere, right? Until you figure out what you want to interfere with. And right now, I don't think any, any state or government body yet knows how they should interfere. There are two guiding principles in my mind that we should keep in mind uh, that I think can be sort of the uh, founding axioms for a lot of this. Uh, to me, it's, it's informed consent meaning the consumer actually should know. And now whether, whether, you know, can the state bother to sort of force the consumer to learn, that's a separate question. But at least the information should be available and should be discoverable, right? And the other one, uh, I'm a huge believer in, in opt-in, right? What does opt-in mean? Opt-in means the consumer actually physically, positively says, yes, I do want you to track me. There may be other consequences of it, but I do want you to track me. Do we have examples of where consumers do this willingly? Yes, plenty, right? Think of any of the loyalty schemes out there, you know, your, your, your mileage points when you go to an airline. I've seen people fight with the airline clerk on the desk to make sure, make sure it's my number, right? Or you got the wrong number here, fix it. You know, track me, right? Uh, because there's a perceived value in return, right? Um, and I think the equation can be made very healthy if companies figure out how to explain the value, and the value is there, right? I mean, Google spends hundreds of millions to billions operating the search engine, making sure it's fresh and complete and, and so forth. Uh, and, and that's a benefit, right? To have a fresh index of the web that gives me my answer in seconds. Uh, in return, I should get the following rights if you use my engine, right? And, and once you have that, that value exchange and, and the information is, is available, uh, then I think you have the basics for a, for a clean equation. And, and by the way, the good news is, once you have opt-in, there's no government that can, I mean, no reasonable government can or could generally interfere. Even the oppressive ones uh, will have problems interfering. So if I, I may follow up on that, I, I think we, we could probably have a, an entirely new panel just to discuss the, the the vagaries of opt-out versus opt-in. Um, I, I think the important thing to take away from that, though, is that it maybe shouldn't be, you know, a, a government regulator making a decision about whether this needs to be opt-out or opt-in. Because then, how do you how do you enforce that? How do you distribute that through this whole ubiquitous computing um, network that we've created? Uh, perhaps a better approach is to encapsulate those those basic principles, those fundamental principles that that are already in the Data Protection Directive and in the APEC privacy platform and all the other global counterparts to the Data Protection Directive. Um, the, the term in, in my community that's been thrown around a lot is privacy by design. 
um, making sure that when you build these technologies, when you make these platforms available, that there are certain essential principles that protect fundamental consumer privacy rights embedded into the technology itself. And I believe the best way to do that is to bring industries together to come up with industry standards. And um, at Vodafone, we're, we're working a lot with the, the GSM and the GSMA to do things like application developer guidelines for the, the, uh, you know, the, the wireless telecom industry to do just that. I'd also add that I'm not sure whether I agree with everything Osama said or not. I, I think that comes back to the question of uh, I think I would say that first we must agree on what we mean by opt-out and opt-in, and we must agree on what we mean by tracking, because otherwise we might wind up regulating out of existence the most basic protections against denial of service attacks or ad spam or click fraud. And all, all of this actually goes smoothly into the next issue, <laughs> advertising. If you want to talk about privacy by design, you want to talk about transparency, what people don't realize is that, well, at least in 2007, 2008, this was considered the, the oil that makes the Internet work. This is why we had free services. This is what made the Internet possible, advertising. Google made its billions off of advertising. eBay and Yahoo and Microsoft are all fighting over that space. But something's been happening recently where companies are making money off of advertising, but... Uh, this weekend, the New York Times announced that it's going to move away from a free model of uh, giving people free access to the New York Times, and then moving back to a very 1990s concept of, of subscription. So what's happening to this promise of uh, Internet advertising making everything free? Because that was what we were promised in exchange for giving up our privacy. We were promised free services. That is, you can't search the Internet for free. You do it on the basis that, that your information could be used and processed for advertising purposes. And same when it comes to uh, access to news, newspaper articles and so on and so forth. So what's going on in this space now? So I might comment that while acknowledging the decision that the New York Times is choosing to make, there is an awful lot of advertising, thriving advertising supported content out there on the internet. Um, one of the things that Google was always proud of and excited about with AdSense was the feeling that it was successfully funding many, many individual sites putting up useful content to people and being able to make that an economically viable thing. So I think we have this particular pain point that we're seeing right now in the case of a news industry that is still moving from the traditional model of having paper subscriptions into the internet model, but that that is not necessarily the only representative case for the question of whether advertising supports quality content for people for free on the internet. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll, sh I'll share my, my opinion here. Um, look, I think at, at the end of the day, uh, with the start of the Internet, something strange and transient happened. And I think we're beginning to see it unwinding. Uh, the strange and transient thing is uh, there was this sort of feeling of entitlement that, you know, everything is free, right? I could get at it. 
I think the fact that, and, and all you have to do is, is you know, think about it from an economic uh, perspective. Uh, while technologies like Google AdSense uh, and you know Yahoo uh, Content Match, I think we called it, and Microsoft's uh, Content Ads, they, they are designed to sort of enable any publisher to put up ads uh, on their site and therefore and share in the revenue. Uh, that equation hasn't worked out uh, to the advantage of the publishers historically so far. And, and part of that is, is the fact that sort of the new younger companies, the Googles of the world and the Yahoos and so forth, are, are, are way more advanced on uh, the technology forefront and understand that medium better and so forth. And these, these uh, other companies come from roots that are uh, much older and, and sort of live in a different world. But what's happening now in the example of the New York Times is, is, is an excellent example of that, is if you're actually spending money to develop that content, if you're actually paying a reporter to theoretically stay you know, neutral and report the news for, for the sake of truth and not for, for any other thing, and you're trying to separate the advertising from the, uh, from the content and so forth, uh, then there's a cost to that. And to, to live in a world, and, and news is an excellent example of that, right? The, the news, most of the value usually is in the headlines, right? And if the consumer gets suddenly an alternative way to get at the headlines for free and without much effort and without having to pay anything, uh, then, you know, as a newspaper, why the heck should I be paying for it by myself, right? Uh, so, so what the New York Times is doing is economically totally rational, right? They're actually seeing newspapers around them fall apart because the model is not enough to support it and you need the subscription bit. Um, I think an excellent example is uh, the Wall Street Journal. I, I, you know, I worked with the, with the Dow Jones and company for, for many years, dating back to 2000. Uh, early on, they actually recognized this. And while everybody was em embracing the internet free model, Wall Street Journal actually said, no, we'll only make a few things free. And if you want to look at the article, if you want to you know, go back in history, anything like that, you have to be a subscriber, right? And a lot of people predicted that that's going to be their demise and so forth, and in, instead, um, it, it became sort of the, the strength of their online business, right? Now they still have the offline component, and that one is in trouble, and you know they need to, to migrate that part. Uh, but there, there has to be, you know, somebody has to pay the piper somewhere, right? Otherwise, these things go away. And I think we, we would all be worse off in a world where we actually no longer have quote-unquote, professionally generated content, right? I think just like, you know, people pay for movies because they want to be entertained and they want the big productions, you know, the avatar and, and the so forth, and you're never going to get that on an advertising-based model, uh, at least not, not in the next decade, uh, unless something big happens. Um, the same is true in the world of publishing and content and so forth. So I think it's going to be a mix of the two, and I think... Uh, you know, the, the world will adjust and, and, and you know, may, maybe companies like Yahoo and Google will, will make less money off of those publishers and maybe there'll be less distribution, but, you know, we'll adjust to a new, to a new equilibrium. I think there's value to both. I think there's value to democratizing the, the source of, of news to, to make anybody be able to publish it, and there's value in, in getting paid for, for what you pay for.
If I could adopt this question slightly uh, for Richard's situation at Facebook, both uh, Facebook and Google uh, share a trait, and that is you don't make any money off of subscriptions to your users. So I've always been curious, um, sorry for talking about money, but how does Facebook make money? Is it the same as Google through the advertising, or? It's the same but different. Uh, it's the next. It's advertising 2.0. Uh, oh God! Uh, I mean, it, it, in a way, it's similar. I think the reality is, I'm building up on Osama's point is that you know you have got you've got a number of different players in this space. You've got people who who build internet connectivity, um, who have to find out ways of making money, and they typically go for monthly subscriptions. Your service provider. You've got people who have. Um, traditional content models like the newspapers, film industry, music industry and so on and they're figuring it out and they're using a whole mix of different things from you know, the music industry from Spotify through iTunes through to a number of other different services trying to figure out how to make sense of it and then you've got people like um, Facebook, Yahoo, Google you could argue are you know, that they, they require massive infrastructure to deliver this global service to millions and millions of users so that has to be paid for somehow uh, but they are kind of pure, if you like, internet uh, um, services. They're internet-based services. They only exist to provide a service to internet users. And for us, the typical model has been advertising. The expectation of the user is that it's free at the point of delivery and that we come up with a, a smart way of funding that through advertisers. Um, I, I kind of joked about the model being the same, but different. in a sense it is in that um, you know, Facebook uh, ex uh, makes its money, it supports that infrastructure by connecting people with product to people who might want to buy that product. The way where it's slightly different is that you know, we develop this range of what we call engagement adver advertisements where um, rather than just seeing the ad and clicking through, you become a fan of the page, you become a fan of the product, you watch a video, you do a poll. There's a whole range of other stuff we do. But essentially it is about connecting people with product uh, to people who want to buy that product uh, and that person paying for that connection to be made. And that seems to us to be a pretty you know, sustainable model. I think for the large internet services that are running the way that we run, um, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, that, that does seem to be uh, a reasonable deal that we have with our consumers. Our consumers seem comfortable with it. I mean, wh where we get it right, the adverts actually add value to the core product. And Google will say this, where Google's working really well, you do a search, and actually the ads are also useful as well, well as the product. You know, where people come onto Facebook and they see stuff which, you know, they like Starbucks coffee and they get connected to Starbucks coffee for a free Starbucks coffee, that actually adds value to their Facebook experience. So it is advertising, but it's also where it's right, part of the experience. But there's always that risk of the, the ick factor. I remember once in a status update uh, on Facebook, I mentioned uh, I, I really enjoyed the pizza I had last night. For the next week, I was getting those damn pizza advertisements. So it's just slightly annoying, but sometimes it gets a little bit more invasive. And if I could uh, direct that more towards Casey, because working in the mobile space, advertising is inevitably going to get more and more specific to what it is that we're doing, not just online, but where we are physically. Do you see, like, what is, what, what's Vodafone facing in this space? Because I, I know the mobile industry thought back in 2000, oh, uh, mobile advertising is going to be the thing. You must have all seen the advertisements on television about, oh, I'm close to a pub, it'll let me know I have a special deal and all that. But then they realized that nobody actually wanted that because it kind of freaked people out. Are we different now? Are we ready for that mobile advertising? Well, it's possible, right? Everybody's seen the, the ads like Minority Report. We, we don't actually want to advertise to you based on, you know, your eyeballs, but to a certain extent, if advertising becomes that relevant, and, and Richard 
pointing this out a little bit, if it's exactly what you're looking for, exactly the time you need it, is it, is it advertising or is it just mm -hmm. an extension of the network that, that you embedded yourself in? Um, I, I am disclaiming, disclaiming any knowledge of, of Vodafone's current marketing practices. I'm, I'm fairly new to the company and just starting to learn what it is that, that we're actually doing. Um, but, but I will say that if we're talking about something that is consent-based, and how we get that consent is a matter of the debate, but if, if a user finds value in that kind of a dissemination of offers, then they'll certainly choose to participate in that. And then, you know, where's the harm? As long as we have concrete rules around how we're collecting the data, how we're keeping the data, how we're using the data, then I, I think using it for those purposes is adding value. I think that's kind of where the, the network is going, right? Your, your intelligent personal valet that's going to tell you, I, I understand what your interests are, I know where you, 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 you've been during the day, where you normally go, and what you're normally interested in this time. So here's the, the offer that is going to be most useful for you. Okay. For a change of gear, let's get to a completely different topic, and that is the cloud. Who here uses uh, the LSE email? Who here uses it for all personal emails? That's what I figured. Who here has a Yahoo account or a Gmail account or a Hotmail account? <laughs> yeah, so you probably don't know it, but you're all users of what is called the cloud. That is, back in the old days of the 1990s, when you did email, odds are your email was on your laptop. Or not your laptop, your big desktop computer, your tower computer on your, uh, on your desk. And your email resided perhaps on a server that was relatively close to you. Might have been at BT, might have been at the LSC, might have been at your office. Now more and more of these services are moving into this thing called the cloud. You ask people, what is the cloud? Well, really, nobody quite understands. But essentially, it's data and services being run somewhere that you don't actually know where it is. You don't know where your emails are when Gmail, when you use Gmail or Hotmail. Well, they're actually based in the United States, but most people don't know that. You don't know where in the United States. You don't know which jurisdiction applies in the United States. These are all the challenges of cloud where, sure, it's email, but soon, or already, Google's doing it with documents. Instead of using Microsoft Office, you use Google Documents. Is that what it's called, Google Docs? Something like that. This is one of those things where I get confused between what we call it internally and yeah. what we're like branding it. We're processing and spreadsheets. Google Docs. And, yeah. Okay, Google Docs. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, all the documents that you are doing for whether it's your personal affairs or your corporate affairs, reside on a server somewhere in Google's server farm somewhere in the world in this cloud. All the companies here are dealing with a similar phenomenon of the cloud. And so before uh, tonight's panel, I, I put a question out to the, twi the Twitter sphere asking, do you have any questions for these people on stage? And this was one of the questions that came in. Who owns the information when it's in the cloud? Is it yours or does it belong to the companies? and under which, jur which jurisdiction. And importantly, as we saw recently uh, with, uh, the, with Facebook and with, the, um, with multiple social networking uh, platforms, how are we going to ensure that information can be moved across these services? So maybe you get bored of Facebook uh, and you want to go to MySpace. Nobody does that. They go from MySpace to Facebook. How do you make sure you can move that information across? Or with Google Docs, how do you make sure that the moment you sign up to Google, you're not bound to Google for the rest of your life? How do you keep that ability to function in a marketplace where you can change, um, change providers? Maybe start with Google. 
So at Google, we actually have something um, that we started in engineering with the kind of cheesy name Data Liberation Front, which was actually the goal of this project is to make sure that for everything where you're using a Google service to hold your information, you can take it out again easily and move it somewhere else. And we felt that there were a number of benefits to doing this. One of the benefits was that you know it, it makes our position fairly clear on this question of, well, whose data is it? Well, it's yours. You can take it away. Another thing was that we have always said internally and externally that our business stands or, stands or falls on the trust of our users. And we felt as engineers that building in this capability would keep us honest. Right, that if our users stay with us, if they keep using Gmail, if they keep using Docs, if they keep using Google, they're not doing it because it's too hard to leave. And they're doing it because they still trust us. So that was our approach to this question. How about Facebook with the portability issue? So on the portability issue, I mean, I, I don't think it's as straightforward as it has been painted. I mean, um, there are all kinds of discussions that take place between companies around all sorts of forms of data interchange already, around things like contact importers and mm -hmm. uh, transfer of data in and out, and and this, they get bound up in commercial considerations. I mean, let's be completely honest that a lot of commercial considerations apply here as to how easy you make it to integrate or not integrate different services, and, and people in all the big companies talk about this all the time. Uh, in terms of the uh, key point though about who owns the data, so there's two things to pick out. One is technically how easy is it to move things between different companies, and I say and people get together and discuss this at both technical and commercial level. The other is who owns the data, which I think is, is perhaps the more fundamental question. Facebook's one is quite straightforward. When we had our, what is now known as Tossgate, uh, terms of service gate. I think that's maybe an external name, but certainly an internal name. Um, when we had our little little row uh, last year about um, the terms of service, where uh, for those who um, weren't aware of it, uh, some terms of service were published, which talked about all kinds of data rights that that actually the company would argue were, were not very different from those which are, prevail on most websites. But when you read them in black and white, made everyone go shock horror, you're stealing my data, aren't you? And that was replaced which is with a statement which says now in the uh, Facebook Statement of Rights and Responsibility, which is the next we can have an SRR gate next time because we won't have a TOS gate. So it's now Statement of Rights and Responsibilities. It says all the data that you upload to Facebook is your data. You are merely granting Facebook a temporary license to do the things it needs to do in order to display, share, move the data around, move it to different places on the uh, server cloud, etc. But the data is yours. And at any time you can withdraw that license uh, and the data was yours to begin with, remains yours, and will always be yours. So there's the data ownership point, which I think is really critical. And then the, uh, the second, second set of issues, which I think are very complex around how easy we make it uh, to shift services. Okay, well, just linked to that, let me yeah. move slightly. If you, if you say the information belongs to individuals, what about the power to delete? Because I remember we, for a while we had a bit of a conflict with Facebook about deleting accounts or deactivating accounts. Yeah. Like uh, there's been uh, conflicts with the search industry about deletion of information because uh, prior to about three years ago um, every search term you ever made in your entire life was kept by these companies indefinitely. 
and then Yahoo started, then Google uh, followed, Microsoft followed, and it's been a bit of a war in the marketplace to, to cut down on the, the retention period of this information. So recently, I think it's just yesterday or two days ago, uh, Microsoft announced that in its uh, process of buying some parts of Yahoo, it will delete the information relatively quickly, three months, and that's an industry record. So deletion is becoming an issue. How are you managing that? Sort of Facebook has a quick, just, just, I mean, for clarity again, that when Facebook was designed, it was designed by students who are aspirational engineers who never imagined anyone would ever want to leave the service. Um, Hotel but, California. But very quickly, actually, they found there was demand for a feature called deactivation, and that was typically students going into uh, final year exams who wanted to sort of drop out of Facebook for two or three months or going away for a long summer holiday and not wanting to miss things. So they introduced this deactivation feature, which you uh, make your account go to sleep, but the data all sits there, and then you can reactivate at any point. Um, that was the only feature for a period of time, and then there was demand, I'm sure, from Privacy International, amongst others, to say, why haven't you got a full deletion feature that's been introduced? And if you now look at the revised privacy policy as of last November, it also points you very clearly to a deletion feature. If you click the delete button, that is, I mean, our philosophy is user control, and you know, it's your, your IP, and you can get rid of it. If you tell us that you're withdrawing the license and you want us to destroy that IP, subject to the go back to your first question, having to hold on to it for a very short period of time, either because it's been done by error, someone's gone into your account and deleted all your data, and you need the opportunity to kind of cancel the instruction, or because law enforcement have legitimate reasons to want us to, to access that data. Someone's done something bad and pushed the delete button to destroy the evidence. But subject to that kind of couple of weeks period, um, then we start deleting it off the servers, and it's gone. Uh, Let's see. This question, by the way, is deletion is way more complex than it might seem at, at the surf surface. And the uh, you know answers like your, your, your data belongs to you, uh, while they while they may sound simple, uh, they're just simply not pragmatic or, or practical. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Being the guy who was very much involved and in driving the whole uh, search deletion effort at at, at Yahoo. Uh, you know, the Yahoo exec team sort of assigned to me the task of driving that uh, that discussion, thinking, and I'm sure in their minds that, you know, being the data guy, I'm going to be, you know, for the position of hoarding data as much as possible for as long as possible. Uh, my approach to it was, was quite the opposite, actually. I, I took a look at, you know, pragmatically, how long do we need to look at that data for? Uh, how are we using it? realistically, right? other than storing it somewhere with the possibility that one day it might become useful. Am I really looking at data that's two years old, that's one year old, etc.? Uh, and I looked at other things like legal requirements and so forth. Uh, so from a practical perspective, uh, I came back with a pretty aggressive recommendation that said, you know, I want to delete this data at the time. It was, I was pushing for about six months. Uh, we ended up taking it to one year, and, and, and this was a, a first effort, or roughly 13 months. Um, but I'll tell you why the question is complex, right? Um, and by the way, um, you know, th this data is pretty scary, right? Uh, some of you who are familiar with, you know, the whole fiasco that happened when AOL released a bunch of uh, search queries for quote-unquote research purposes, right? And, and they, you know, they bothered to sort of anonymize the user ID 
so that you know they took whatever the user ID is and encrypted it to something unique but but different. Well, these guys forgot, for example, that many people like to search on themselves, uh, and of course, now that I know that you search on yourself more than normal, therefore that must be you, so I know your name. I can even look up your address, I can look up other addresses you looked for, and I can look up other things and other sites, you know, God forbid, what else you searched for on the internet, right? So suddenly it became this, this big disaster. So this data is, is potent and dangerous, right? Uh, my attitude towards it was, this is really a toxic asset, right? So I want it off my hands as soon as possible. And, and by the way, the reality is, there's a very clean dynamic uh, in the industry that's sort of working on the consumer privacy side, which is the following. Uh, if I were using this data to target ads, then pretty much what I care about is your consumer activity when you're doing commercial things, right? I couldn't care less, frankly, what news article you were looking for or what book you checked out of the library I care a lot about whether you were searching to buy a car or a digital camera, etc. And the good news is that these commercially related events are a lot less privacy sensitive than sort of the information uh, based requests. Now here's, here's why the question is, is complicated. The two things that stood in the way of sort of eliminating much of this data immediately were legal and let's call it contractual, right? Uh, Yahoo and Google are in the business of charging, say, for the clicks, right? Every time you click on a sponsored link, uh, the advertiser pays money to the provider, to Yahoo or Google, let's say. Uh, well, guess what? An advertiser might come back and uh, dispute and say, that wasn't a real click. It's not by a real user. It's by some robot I want a refund, right? Or by some shady firm or what have you, what, what we call click fraud. Well, you actually, because you're billing the advertiser, you actually have to, these are like, you know, call detail, detail records for a, uh, for a telco, right? You have to keep them around to actually prove that, no, a real human being actually clicked on this, and therefore you owe me for these clicks, right? Uh, so that was one, that's the contractual. The legal one was another interesting one. A lot of the governments, including the U.S. government, actually required that these search, you know, due to quote-unquote law enforcement requirements, they required these queries to be kept around, right? And they were panicking, saying, you know, what do you mean you're going to delete them, right? So the, the, the question is, is much more complicated than just saying the data is yours, right? In reality, you know, it, it's a mix of, of many things, so we have to be very, very careful what we mean by data and what we mean by yours. I'll just comment that, so, I absolutely agree with what uh, Usama just said last, that what do we mean by data and what do we mean by yours? Um, I was the equivalent person leading the question of what Google could do in terms of anonymizing the search log data early. And I'm not sure that we want to spend equivalent amount of time for this. I could talk as long as Usama did, but I'll just say there were significant differences in our experience and our concerns than what Osama just described and that many of the things that were the, the important factors that went into our decisions were different from what, uh, from what you have described. So you keep data longer? We keep data longer, but our concerns were... I mean, I can go into it, but... Well, I'm curious, like... Um, <laughs> let me put it this way. 
the, the companies seem to be competing now to have the shorter retention period. And it's not as if anybody in this audience really understands or cares. But there is this competition that's taking place. And Google seems to be the slowest at cutting their rates of retention period. So um, um, Yahoo started by going down to 13 months. Microsoft, being innovative as ever, came down to 13 months. Uh, and Google eventually came down to, I think, 14 months. Now you're, you're at about 13, if I recall correctly. Microsoft's saying they're going to go down to six months. Yahoo uh, and Microsoft are saying three months. Yahoo's deleting its advertising data as well. What's holding Google back in that respect? So, so to clarify, Google is at nine months for IP addresses and 18 months for cookies. I believe, I believe Microsoft is comparable for cookies. Yes, for cookies. Although right. they've, uh, but they've, they've moved to six months for IP addresses yes. now. Um, I would say that we think the most important competition is going to be for which search engine people find most useful. And that we have conducted our internal investigation of just exactly how long we think, well, exactly is a misnomer. These things are never exact, right? These are best faith judgment calls on the costs and benefits of pegging the retention to a certain point. And in all of our effort to figure out what we believe is the right point to peg that, nine months for IP is what we have settled on. And again, we think the competition is going to be who, which search engine and which search results people find most useful. Okay. Uh, last question. Sorry, Richard, I had to bring up the Facebook. I brought the Google uh, controversy, and now here's the Facebook controversy. So you had your terms of service controversy earlier last year, then later last year you had another controversy um, around the changes of the privacy policy, and then most recently, because um, apparently the Daily Telegraph only has one photo of Mark Zuckerberg, um, talking about how uh, privacy is a changing social norm. It's not a right or something crazy like a legal issue. It's really a, a social norm, and he, and he commented, the media got it wrong. They, they really made a mess of his of his talk, but he did say people have really gotten comfortable not only sharing more information in different kinds, but more openly and with more people. So this raises the, the, the question, do people care about privacy? It's not an easy one. Here's a, a, a poll saying most Americans are willing to be uh, go through the, the process of a virtual uh, uh, well, body scan, well, it's a real, it is a virtual body scan, uh, basically taking off your clothes in order to go through airport security in, in the United States and increasingly across Europe. Most people are in favor of that. There was a poll that came out today saying, um, well, um, everybody's in favor of internet privacy. But how do you resolve that against the practices of people where they give away information all the time? Or Mark Zuckerberg's point that you know the norms are changing, we are sharing more and more information. So you have these Often people are saying, oh, I care about privacy, and then give it away. Other times they say, oh, I don't care about privacy, but all of a sudden you're being subjected to a virtual strip search. All of a sudden you care about privacy. How do companies negotiate this, this schizophrenic attitude of consumers and citizens? I'll start perhaps with Facebook. Thanks, Gus. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I think what Mark was saying, I think um, you know, anyone who's kind of awake um, has to recognize that things have changed, that the way in which society behaves is different because of the internet. I mean, you know, the thing that has changed things is the greatest copying machine ever invented, furiously copying stuff everywhere, uh, and that stuff includes stuff about us, and, and we are having to get used to that. 
almost irrespective of whether we like it, but the fact is that most people, um, we believe by experience, are, and it's not just ours, so there's a whole range of different services, most people are actually celebrating the arrival of this great big machine rather than uh, feeling overwhelmed or threatened by it. And I, th I think a lot, I mean, you pulled some of that out, because I think a lot depends on how you ask the questions. Um, and somebody earlier referred to the store card example. You know, if, if you said to people, have you read the terms of service of your Sainsbury's store card? Do you understand the privacy implications of your Sainsbury's store card? You can kind of make a really big scary thing out of it. Or you can, and my experience in politics tells me that you can kind of essentially trust the fact that most people are pretty smart and know, you know, do understand most of the time the kind of deal they're getting. Do you, do you say, look, you know, are you happy that Sainsbury's collects this stuff in order to give you a few quid every month of your shopping? And the, and the vast majority of people say, yeah, I feel comfortable. And there's a whole range of different factors in there. So, some are to do with the power relationship between you and the entity collecting the data. It would be really different if the Home Office said, we want to collect your shopping habits. It is different from Sainsbury's doing it. So it's, it, there's a kind of lot of factors involved in that that uh, um, deal, uh, if I put it that way, around uh, data for service. Um, and I think that the public really, in most cases, do understand that, and they are demonstrating in the way that they behave increasingly um, that they are comfortable with services that involve um, sharing of all kinds of information. And they understand the deal that they're getting. I, I think that just, I mean, in a sense, Facebook is absolutely in the place you know, that, that is... Um, uh, moving with that trend and believes that that trend is, is significant. Um, but I say I don't think we're exceptional in that. I think there's a general social trend. And I think the converse, which is to say, you can take some kind of quite abstract privacy rights and essentially say the public is stupid. You know, we've got to intervene because these people are making bad choices and they're too stupid to make good choices. Um, and I wouldn't put ourselves, you know, we're at the other end of that debate. It doesn't mean that, and not to kind of decry the risk altogether, it doesn't mean that there aren't rogues out there, you know, people who are uh, on the edges and are going to do bad things. Um, but I wouldn't want, you know, the, the sort of hard cases make bad law uh, thing to prevail, that because there are some people who will do some difficult things, that the, for the vast majority of people who are enjoying this internet thing, enjoying these services, enjoying the, the kind of the fact that they, um, when they want to find out about somebody or get to know somebody, do get into instant access to a certain amount of information and understand that in return they've got to provide, there's reciprocity. They've got to provide the information to the other person. Most people are adapting, enjoying, and celebrating that, and um, that's where we've put ourselves. Until their parents become friends on uh, Facebook, <laughs> and hence the introduction of lists, so yes. that you can now say different messages to your that's parents right. and your peers. So. On, on the topic of whether people actually care about privacy or not, I actually have a little story from my pre-Google days as a security and usability and human factors person. So when this, this field, little subfield of trying to make security usable by normal people kind of sprung up, there was an, a really interesting time when it attracted, it, which it continues to do, but at the beginning, when it attracted people from psychology and people who were, you know, really doing the, the user experience research, sometimes from a postmodern point of view, and sort of the hardcore security people who were very depressed that nobody ever used the fantastic security that they developed. And there was an interchange I had with the, the very user-focused people in which they said, you know, 
when we work with actual users we go out and talk to people and we try to realize what their concerns are what we hear one of the things we hear a whole lot is people are afraid of being stalked you know when they go online when we talk to people about when you go online are you concerned about your security they say oh yes I'm afraid that you know somehow I will wind up being stalked and that they will you know, reveal accidentally some information that will allow somebody to stalk them in the real world so then I went almost directly from that to a security conference in which all of the security folks were once again going, you know, people just don't care about security. They're so ignorant and they don't realize how in danger they are and, you know, we have to protect them. And I said, you know, well, I was just over talking to, you know, these people who, who work with actual people a whole lot and they said that the real the security concern everyone has is this they don't want to be stalked. And all the security researchers were like, what does that have to do with security? <laughs> and so I suspect that it feels to me like there's still a fair amount of that going on in this privacy discourse that, and I think Richard touched on that, you know, there are some of these sort of very, there are some of these privacy frameworks that have been developed that may not necessarily match up well with what people do very, very much care about, and there's still work to be done in closing those gaps. I would say, though, that I'm not so sure that social norms or human nature have changed, mm -hmm. right? It's just that people have always wanted a platform, and now we don't, we're not all fighting over the same soapbox anymore. You know, it's, it's the, the democratization of the generation of content. It's the, the ability to find or create an audience that is now available to everybody because of these new technologies. Um, the thing that hasn't changed, I think, is the fact that people still want a degree of control over the information that they put out there. And so people may react in different ways to the, the choices that you give to them. Um, you, know, you may give them these tools that they may or may not use to protect their own privacy, their own security. But countless consumer surveys say that even if they don't decide to use them, the fact that they're there changes the way that they interact with your company. They may not take advantage of them, but they know that if they decide to put information out there, that they have that ability to control who it gets to and what the audience is. I'm not sure that uh, people's habits have changed. I, I, I agree with Casey. I, I actually think there is a great degree of consumer ignorance. And it's, it's not bad ignorance. It's just lack of experience because the medium is new. Uh, most people don't, don't sit down and sort of think it through. What happens when I do a Facebook update, right? Uh, you know, let, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm a Facebook user. Uh, every once in a while, I'll sort of get into it more if, if my kids, you know, sort of drive me to use it or certain groups of friends. Uh, but for example, I got out of the habit of saying, for example, oh, heading to London, right? Why? Because, you know, through experience, I learned that, you know, well, I come to London and there's you know, I have enough, so much time to see so many people, I don't see the others, I got a bunch of people who are upset at me, right? Either you came and you didn't call, etc., right? And those are the innocent ones. Uh, and it's not just a Facebook example. Think of many examples. Try, at, at Yahoo, I was involved in trying to help individuals, consumers, who were actually trying to remove, uh, ref you know, false references to them. Let's say, you know, God forbid, so, you know, somebody hates you, and write an article against you, you know, claiming you stole money from X. Or here's a picture showing that, you know, uh, Alma is, is walking out of the store after she stole, you know. And it has nothing to do with her, right? 
Try to remove that. Right? Try to get Google and Yahoo and Microsoft to purge that from search engine results. From it's a nightmare. Right? There is a very, you know, it's a very scary world. And I, I don't mean to say this to scare people, but you know, we do need uh, awareness to to increase. Consumers need to understand what the heck could happen to this data. That there's a lot of dangers that come with disclosing too much to the wrong crowd at the wrong time. Uh, you know, and like you mentioned, people can keep a cup. You know, so somebody goes crazy and starts putting, you know, stupid stuff on Facebook that they didn't want to share with the world, and some other idiot somewhere just keeps copies of it, right, and publishes it later, right? So even if you go and delete the data that belongs to you, uh-uh, you know, it's there, it's sitting. You know, I could get it from Internet Archives, I could get it from a million places, right? So it, it is a, it is a world, you know, just like, you know, automobiles. You know, they're very powerful devices. They are probably the most dangerous, you know, tool that we use. But they're also highly regulated. Right? You're supposed to, to to follow certain traffic rules, and you don't run the red light, and and all of that is for a reason. You don't drive on the sidewalk. Uh, you know, we we do need that that regulation. But we, before regulation comes, we actually need that awareness and that understanding. And I think it's just simply too early. It's it's too wild frontier. I think that's my personal opinion. Also, I think if consumers are ignorant about what controls are out there and what their privacy rights are, then we as companies haven't done a very good job of communicating that way, right? We we write these long, legalistic, 4,000-word privacy policies that really don't convey any information to the average user. And I think we, we need to get better about thinking about how to talk to the user about their rights and their responsibilities online. Raise your hand if you've actually read a privacy policy. <laughs> Good Lord, that's more than I thought, to be honest. Raise your hand if you understood the privacy policy. <laughs> okay, now we're going to go to the open floor uh, part of the, uh, the evening. If you have any questions, just raise your hand. If you can introduce yourself to some degree um, as you're asking the question and address the question to uh, all the panel or specific speakers. Um, so, any questions? Uh, I'll leave. Raise, raise your hand again. Okay, there we go. Hello, uh, my name is Pivos, and I'm in the Information Systems uh, Management Department. Um, it's called ADMIS, it's called. Uh, my question is towards Google. Uh, you said that the, the most important thing about you is, is trust with your customers, to earn their trust. So uh, you earn the trust by adding security. For example, you use encryptions to the emails something that Hotmail or some other provider doesn't do. But on the other hand, uh, for me, myself, I keep using Gmail because the security that you have added gives me a sense of uh, more privacy, that I can have my actions, my data more private. But on the back end, uh, there is no privacy because uh, someone may ask this data or someone may hack this data. So uh, how can I earn my, my trust when you have two controversial things, with the front end and the back end? So, yes, it is, it's a very good point that the SSL protection that we've added for Gmail, its purpose is specifically to protect your mail as it travels between your computer and Google servers. So then there's often the question of why not support some form of Gmail or, or of Docs that would provide encryption so that Google itself never sees the content of the content that you're storing with Google. And 
This is a difficult problem. So I'll, I'll, let me make a couple of points about this. First of all, there is nothing that prevents people from using Gmail in that way if they want to, and there are, in fact, some third-party solutions on top of Gmail that will you know, basically do PGP on top of Gmail for you. However, and I say this with chagrin as someone whose doctoral thesis work was on the problem of trying to make key management for you know, communication between arbitrary individuals manageable for people, I don't think that we're really there yet. So in the focusing on Gmail as a specific question, if you were going to, if I was going to encrypt my Gmail or Gmail was going to support this so that Google itself would never see it, but I could email my mother and I could email my friend and only they would be able to see it, then I would have to be able to handle managing encryption keys that were shared in the proper way between me and all of those individuals. And that's not something that we really know how to make the vast majority, make so that it's manageable by the ma vast majority of Gmail users as of yet. There's also the case that with many of our services, we're trying to add a lot of value through making things searchable, through being able to do, you know, searchable by you so that when I go and I use my Gmail, I can interact with it basically through a search interface and I don't have to remember I put something in a particular folder and I can do more and more things like real-time translation and so on. And to provide that kind of service, Google Server has to be able to work with the data. So, but we again and again ask internally, is this something, you know, even if most people can't use it, should we put the engineering work in to support it in good faith? Maybe at some point we will. Can we just uh, let other people ask questions first and maybe come back? Who wants to ask a question next? Okay. Uh, oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. It's okay, it's going to be quick. Um, my name's Jessica, um, and this is kind of almost a cheap, easy question. Um, a lot of what we've talked about um, tonight has been kind of obscure. What if a person feels like their privacy has been violated? Um, when in fact, I think a lot of it relates very directly, especially to our generation, where we started using the internet before the ramifications of it um, became clear to us. And I think particularly, I'm talking about Facebook, I think, where people posted pictures I think they maybe wouldn't be proud of in the future. And I guess one of my questions is, um, asking all of you, what do you think are, what do you think is going to happen to our generation when we do big things like run for political office and things like that? And I, I, I really think this is pressing. And, and do you think that's going to change when, when our generation hits that sort of thing? Do you think people are going to become less or more interested in our private lives? That's a great question. So this has actually been the, the topic of a bunch of different privacy conferences, right? Um, what do you do with the, the detritus of your life on the internet? Um, I tend to find myself in rooms full of uh, middle-aged men uh, making grand pronunciations about, uh, about you know, think of the children, oh my goodness, the, this generation, they've run wild, and look at all these crazy things they put on the internet. Uh, I, I, once, I once tried to draw the analogy, I've, I don't know how relevant this is for this room, but in uh, 1992, when Bill Clinton ran for president of the U.S., it was a huge deal about his marijuana use, right? Oh, you know, I, I, I didn't inhale, I didn't inhale. And then, of course, you know, Bush came along, and, and Bush was, for the most part, silent about his history of drug use. And now we have a president in the United States who has a book where he openly admits uh, experimenting with cocaine. And it wasn't an issue, apparently. I, I didn't. 
hear of anything during, during the campaign. I think you're ultimately going to end up with the, the same uh, the, the same environment with respect to your 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 record online, right? Where everybody's got that, and it's not going to be a disqualifier because if it is, then everybody's disqualified. It's just my personal opinion. Sure. Um, have a look across the channel at what's happening in France. They they have a really interesting debate going on at the moment in French called the droit de l'oubli, which doesn't translate very well. Uh, the closest translation I've seen is the right of oblivion, which, which I think is a really interesting right to have. Uh, and that is essentially about... It's not um, drug policy, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, continuing on. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, and they're, they're, they're really kind of grappling with this question. They've, they've come up, I mean, you know, there's a kind of, this sort of notion of whether in big law you have this right to be obliterated from the internet if you so choose. But they've also looked at things like their in recruitment associations for um, employment recruitment having a code of conduct, which is kind of a, a self-denying order. So I think I was here, and Shirky talks about um, private conversations in the public space. There's this whole notion that certain things are private conversations that because of the internet happen to be in a public space, but you still need to treat them as private. And so they're actually trying to codify that and saying, we as recruiters will not look at Facebook profiles unless we have specifically been given uh, access to that. Um, and I think those are the kind of things we're going to have to develop. Uh, there's, there's a kind of bigger question, which is one of, um, one of the attractions that I kind of drew, drew me to go and work for Facebook, having, having been a politician, is this whole question of, um, is it a healthier society? We talked about civic hygiene. Is it civic hygiene enhanced by the fact that you do have to be a little bit more honest uh, because you are wearing more stuff on your sleeve. I was in a generation where, you know, we all lied about our drug use, and that was okay. We could get away with lying about our drug use, but occasionally get sweaty when you've got a pager message saying the news of the world wants to speak to you, like on a Friday afternoon, and you think, oh, my God, that photo's come out. <laughs> you know, uh, um, and now you won't have that sweaty feeling with the news of the world because it'll be out. And, and, and there is a... I find, one of the things I find really refreshing, I mean, you ask me for your generation, but I'm working with a bunch of people who genuinely believe that openness is a positive benefit for the world. And this enhanced openness actually creates enhanced civic hygiene. And it's a big experiment. And I think, you know, we'd be honest, it's a big experiment. But I, I find it a really exciting experiment. Uh, you know, it, it would go back to your original question around Iran and things. The fact that it is now so open to people outside Iran, because remember, Facebook, for example, is blocked in Iran, inside Iran. But the fact that so much expression can take place outside, there is so much openness that, you know, the, where the Secret Service used to send somebody off to go and kill the odd dissident, now there's too many people to kill because of the openness. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, the impact of that is really quite exciting. There's too many drug-using politicians to ban drug-using politicians, you know, at a more trivial level. Uh, question second. Um, someone said before um, that is the internet truly global or is it national? And I was wondering as a global politics uh, student, um, and thank you in advance for possibly helping my dissertation a whole lot with your answer. Um, I was wondering whether you think international institutions have any role to play in the jurisdiction problems. Um, particularly, you know, you explain it could be one photo put up by, you know, my friend, and I delete myself, but it's still up there. So how does it sort of get the personal aspects? Are international institutions able to kind of reach that deep? Or is it a possibility for industry to coordinate with international institutions, maybe ones that don't even exist yet, um, to kind of resolve some of these jurisdiction problems? You know, I live in the UK, but I'm American, and my data is being held in a server in Virginia. 
uh, near where I used to live and where Facebook holds its information and Google holds its information, how do we start to amend this in kind of a globalizing, sort of more interconnected world if that's sort of the mantra everyone's putting forward? You want to start with that one? Okay, I'll start with that one. Um, I, I mean, the reality is the internet is built on, on essentially on private law, and the services are, are based on sort of kind of private commercial legal arrangements, and then a layer of, of sort of criminal law uh, on top, depending on the jurisdictions you're in. I, I don't see that fundamentally changing, um, because the international institutions that could deal with it don't exist. There was, with the World Summit on Information Society, a kind of nudge in that direction um, uh, but, but most people backed away very quickly because of the implications you know, of pretty much the whole internet industry lobbying against as well as uh, Europe was in a bit of a balanced position, the US lobbying fiercely against any kind of you know, ITU stroke UN stroke uh, kind of intergovernmental institutional arrangements and, and you can see the reason for that there's a little bit of, you know, if things are working uh, more or less well as they are now and things are moving very, very quickly in a very fast-moving space. Almost the last thing you want to do is to introduce a very complex um, uh, global structure on top of it. So, so I mean, the, so top and bottom is I, I don't think, personally, I don't see any signs that there is any kind of global political support for that and that we essentially have to muddle along and make these sort of mixed arrangements work. The strongest tool, actually, is the threat of regulation by national governments, which is leading to quite a, a strong movement towards self-regulation. So, so when we heard earlier about the search engines now disposing of data, they are you know, disposing of that historic data sort of in line with EU procedures because of a threat which may or may not actually have been possible to carry out. But they understood the threat and therefore have moved essentially towards this kind of self-regulatory model where all the search engines will end up more or less in the same place. So I think we are getting quite healthy competition by the commercial entities to drag themselves in line. You know, we all block Nazi material from Germany uh, because you kind of will have problems if you don't. And, and there's lots of examples like that where we're all kind of moving into line, um, but it's done not through global institutions. I think what you're seeing, especially in the privacy sphere, is a movement towards a multinational baseline uh, that is you know, driven by a couple of factors. When we first started talking about consumer privacy, we talked about the fair information principles. It was driven by an OECD uh, policy. Um, and so what you're seeing now in the various different arenas of, of what privacy regulation are things that look fairly similar to that. And I know the EU would disagree that, that the U.S. has anything that is anywhere near an equivalent to EU data protection. But we are moving in that direction, driven, I think, by a lot of the multinational companies that may be based in the U.S. but are subject to... EU regulation. Um, I, I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see the U.S. start to discuss equivalent privacy protections. We, we've already seen a couple of major companies um, promote privacy regulation in the U.S. We're seeing the same thing in Asia Pacific with the APEC privacy framework, um, something also based on the, the fair information principles. So, so you're seeing some leveling going on here. Um, I, I think that Part of what we're going to see in the future is a move towards industry standards and codes of practice, creating even more leveling. You've got, um, it, you know, like, like I was talking about with the with the developer guidelines, right? Th those are going to have to be global in nature because we're talking about participants from all over the world, and so that that will, in essence, create a, a global standard at least for one industry. So, I, just as a, as a quick uh, quick comment on your question and, and the one prior. Um, 
it, it's really very hard. You know, you, you can have global standards, but you know, international enforcement and, and so forth. It, it, that's a that's a whole other arena that I, I don't think is, is effective. I think what you can hope for is that people start subscribing to the global standard, and 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 I think we're seeing some healthy moves on the privacy front by by many uh, countries and governments. And I do think, just to comment on the prior question, is you know. People, you know, societies seem to go through these pendulum swings, right? And I, I, I do think we swung a bit too far where, you know, to the world of Mark Zuckerberg and the, there's no more privacy. Um, and I think there's going to be backlashes. I, I, you know, I'm not as optimistic that sort of we, we'll make it through in a, in a, a clean way. I think there's going to be some, some bad experiences that individuals and big groups will go through and there'll be a swing in the other direction. My big fear is still that governments may overreact early on, especially in things like the advertising business and so forth, before really understanding the consequences. And, and that will prevent some innovations from happening in return for sort of privacy. I mean, anytime I'd rather have the innovation go through and, and you know, we reach next levels uh, before we get sort of over, over-regulated uh, out of it. <laughs> Okay, we have time for one last question uh, in the center right here. Hi, uh, my name is David. I'm curious about the <clears throat> sort of the presence of blogging and the surface of this notion of citizen journalists and how that affects our idea of, of professional publishing. I mean, at some point, I just want to know what's going on with economics. But if I want critical analysis, I'm, there's, I'm happy to pay The Economist. Or if I want critical analysis on Wall Street, I'm happy to pay The Wall Street Journal. You know, for, for throughout known time, people have been stringing bits of information together and then putting it out there. And I mean, you know, if I want to meditate on philosophy, I'll read Descartes and I'll go buy that book. But if I just want to know essentially what he's thought, just give me a headline. So how, how is the New York Times you know, adapting to this, and is, is, do you think it's going to work? And how are other sort of companies going to react to it? Because I, I doubt something like Sky would continue to pay, or would, would ask you to subscribe to it, you know, meter system or whatever, to, to, to get just a headline, because it doesn't give you quite that vigorous analysis the New York Times might. Yeah, so is, you know, if, if, if I have an alternative business model, yeah, the answer is no. Uh, uh, do I know already that the business model is, isn't quite working? The answer is yes, and you know we'll see a lot of pain because of that. Um, I just want to remind everybody that you know sort sort of there is value to that professional opinion, right? right? It's not just about the headlines, and it's not. And by the way, you know anybody's free to say anything, and that's part of the problem, right? If, if, I, you know, if I really want to trust everything I see on Wikipedia, it's a scary world because some of these articles are actually horrible in a sinister way, right? Where somebody just knows how to couch it. Well, it sounds believable, right? And, but yet, you know, it's, it's hogwash, right? So the, 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 that line is a very uh, dangerous line. And, and sort of the internet is just an enabling technology uh, we'll start crossing that line a lot, and I think you know the long-term steady state is what we've seen in the long term, which is you know there are professional forums, there are professional societies, there are ways to 
score and track reputation. And at the end of the day, you, you, you'll tend to believe more those who stand more to lose on their reputation than anybody who can just say anything. And, as far as the business model goes, though, I, I think we're, we're in transition right now. We're seeing an evolution of it. Um, time and time again, consumers have rejected uh, micropayments or individual payments in favor of bucket plans. And so if you think about it, the, the glory of content on the Internet is the diversity of opinion. The way that you consume media on the Internet is you dabble in different sources. And so if you've got the New York Times over here charging for access there, and then you've got that in, in all of the other media that, that you interact with on, online, you're going to find those bills start to really add up. You know, if, well, I, I'm thinking about my, my blog line subscription right now. I, I subscribe to 72 different blogs. If I had to pay for each one of those, I, I'd be broke by the end of the, the month, even on a lawyer's salary. Right? So you know, I, I think at some point we potentially could see the rise of some sort of um, intermediator, some sort of company that aggregates those micropayments and gives you like, some sort of pass or something. Uh, I'm just speculating here, but I, I don't think that the individual subscription model is really one that works for the internet. Fortunately, uh, that model does work for academia, so people like us are paid for it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the whole point of this discussion was to show... So I work in the area of privacy. I'm a privacy advocate. I, I see privacy as a human right, as a consumer right, and I fight and I fight and I fight and I often fight against people like this. But the reality <laughs> is... It's a far more complicated issue than just saying people want privacy or people don't care about privacy. And that was what's so great about this panel is that these speakers kind of showed how messy it is out there. And so while it is scary and while there are a lot of the movements going on in the world, whether it happened with China last week or whether it's bad policy going on in the U.S. or across Europe, one thing I do find hopeful is that uh, if these are the people I have to butt heads with every now and then, that's not such a bad thing. <laughs> thank you very much for all the uh, time and thank you for coming.